Hello, I'm your host, Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Strongly Connected Components, episode 64, brought to you by acmescience.com. On this episode, I'm joined by Matt Parker, comedian, shopkeep, calculator unboxer, and all-around mathematics communication powerhouse, for a conversation about his new book, why it is that he signs calculators, and the origin story of the Festival of the Spoken Nerd. Here we go. It's been five years since my guest was first on Strongly Connected Components. Since then, it seems like he's single-handedly taken over the world of mathematical communications. At least that's how it feels like sometimes. Between his new book, Things to Make and Do in the Fourth Dimension, touring with Festival of the Spoken Nerd, all of the number file videos that he's on, and signing calculators, I think, it it seems like he may have also developed some sort of technology that gives him a few extra hours in the day. Uh, And I'll be sure to ask him about that. So, uh, my guest, Matt Parker, that's his name. Hey. Welcome. Samuel, pleasure to be here. Welcome to Strongly Connected Components. Has it really been five years? Was that the first time? Five five years was the first time you were on Strongly Connected Components, and that was when you were in Las Vegas, and you uh, were the only guest to ever appear in my apartment. I was the one person who had the decency and the respect to come to your studio yep. and do it. And do the interview properly. And, and just just think how my pull has changed. I, I could get you to come fly all the way to Las Vegas to come talk to me. And now now I have to stand in a walk-in closet and talk to you on the phone. And I'm sat, I'm sat in my kitchen uh, in a small town called Godalming, just south of London. So, you know, I think this is more about, less about your, you know, pull and more about how much time I have for holidays. These days. Uh, so, I, I mean, my first question is... Who am I supposed to complain about that your book didn't actually allow me to access the fourth dimension? Oh, that is, I mean, if you could put that in writing (laughs) and send it straight to my publishers. No, well, what I was pleased is the the first book that came out was uh, obviously very much a 3D object, right? The the original hardback. And um, uh, well, actually, people said, well, it really is 2D, isn't it? Because it's just the information on the page. I was like, you know what? I've fallen a long way short of my 4D promise. And so for the paperback, I was able to put a 3D index in, which I thought was a step in the, you know, dimensionally in the right direction. <laughs> so the index, uh, on the, I couldn't do it for the, for the hardback. So the early editions, we couldn't do it because it takes so long to get the whole thing typeset. And then only once it's typeset can you go through and do the index because the words might move around. And then you've got to get that typeset and put in the book. And it's a really long process from a publishing point of view. So they wouldn't let me do it for the first edition. But for the paperback, we had loads of extra time and the book was already written. And so the index, every word or phrase you look up in the index, it will give you not only the page number, but it will give you the X and Y coordinates on the page for where that number appears. So I, I was very pleased. I mean, it's not quite 4D, but I've now got a 3D index. Well, I, I mean, since, since we're talking about it, could you uh, just tell my listeners a little bit about the book itself? Yeah, so you're right. It has been horribly missold by uh, <laughs> the name things to make and do in the fourth dimension. The book is fundamentally not a 4D object. And actually, a huge amount of the book is not about the fourth dimension. So... 4D shapes appear in at least two chapters, if not slightly more. I use that as a nice kind of hook uh, or uh, aspect of the book where, for me, 4D shapes 
I mean, there are some practical uses, but that's a whole different story. But at, at, at a basic level, they're, just, they're fun to think about, and they're not applied math. They're, they're a bit of interesting math you can play around with. And I wanted to do a book about mathematics you can play with. And so I was like, this is a great example to use when I was trying to pitch the book. And the publishers liked it as a title. And so the rest of the book, while you're right, not being 4D, the idea is it's interesting bits of maths that you can play around with yourself. So sorts of puzzles and not quite investigations, but there's things where I'm like, hey, there's some interesting stuff here. You can have a look at it or here's some interesting stuff I found. There's more out there. And so I wanted, because a lot of popular maths books, or oh, do you want maths or math in this interview? What would... it, it, whatever is more comfortable for you. You know what? I will randomly flip between the two. So uh, I, I will attempt to alternate, but I can't <laughs> promise I'll keep track. <laughs> Uh, so anyway, what are we up to now? I just did the maths. Okay, so yeah, a lot of popular math books, they, okay, uh, I've done, okay, yes, math, okay, got it right. So a lot of popular math books, they will talk about math that people have done in the past or some interesting bits of maths that you can uh, look up now, but a lot of it is, is really describing the math and not giving people a chance to, to do that maths themselves. And so I want to do a book where it's not just the history of the subject. It's not just stories about the people who did it. It's actually content you can do yourself. So I really want it to be a book where you don't just read along with the math. You actually have a go with it uh, yourself. Yeah, and and that was that was something that I noticed is that there were a lot of a lot of things in there at the end of chapters of like, oh, do this. There's even parts I believe where you were asking the people who had spent their hard-earned money to actually deface the book and cut bits out. Yeah, that was a controversial choice. I thought, you know what, there's there's some bits I can't do just by printing. Again, it's a limitation of the number of dimensions. And so I was like, right, I've draw, I, I've I've marked the page here. You can cut a hole in this bit, or you can do this, or you can do that. And uh, actually, there's a fantastic book um, called Wreck This Journal, which was part of the inspiration for that. Where the idea was, you got the book, and as you you read it, you gradually defaced and destroyed it. I thought, wouldn't it be great if we had a math book with that similar kind of an angle? You don't just read it. You actually use and interact with the book as you go. Although a lot of people, obviously, they can't do that, right? They've just got some kind of psychological block. And I struggle to write in a book. So I suspect most people will will scan or photocopy or somehow duplicate uh, the pages if they are going to actually destroy them. Actually, I did a video on YouTube where I actually drew, like I, I drew a box and I wrote, in a copy of the book, my, like, a, like my copy of my book, and people complained in the comments that <laughs> I was writing in a book, and that that caused them like physical pain to watch. I was like, hey, hey, I wrote the thing, I get to write on it. Come on, unbelievable. Oh, which is which is something that you've definitely taken to heart. As if if I if I've been following your Twitter from time to time correctly, uh, you actually will just go out and sign some copies of your book. Oh yes, yeah, so absolutely, I um. I will happily deface copies of my book. I will lower the resale value um, substantially. Uh, so for a lot of shows, I mean, I oh, oh, endeavored... I, I was I wasn't yeah. even referring to that. I was referring to when you do oh, it to stores. It. Oh, in stores? Yes. No, you're absolutely right. So I was thinking about when people re uh, request me to do this. No, I go guerrilla style into bookstores, uh, find a copy of my book, deface it. Like no, I don't just like you know. You're, draw something crudely offensive on it. I find the book, I sign it properly, which some people would argue is increasing the value, but that's open to debate. Uh, and then I put it back on the shelf and I will tweet, hey, I've just been in such and such bookshop and I've signed my book first 
10 people to get there uh, can get a copy of it. And actually, there's one bookshop. So there's a train station in London called Waterloo Station, which I uh, regularly have to go through. That's like my standard portal point in and out of London. And so they have a bookstop there that, that stocks my book pretty much on the train station concourse. And so I, whenever I can, I'll go in, I'll deface the books. And because lots of people use the train station, I'll tweet when it's happened and they'll go in and find it. I've never been yelled at yet. No, no bookshop employees <laughs> ever come up and said, hey, what are you doing? Once or twice, I will, I will go to the people in the bookshop and say, hey, You've got my book on the shelf over here. Do you want me to sign some copies? And without fail, every time I've asked, they've said, yes, of course, go for it. And never have they said, wait, are you the author? No one has ever double-checked I'm <laughs> the guy who wrote the book. I mean, my picture's in the back, so it wouldn't, it's not like it's a lot of effort. Flick through, find the author photo, double-check, right? D does he look like the person in the book? But no, no one has ever checked. They've just gone, yeah, sure, go for it. I mean, I've, I mean... A, a cheekier me would just start signing other people's books. I mean, I'd, I'd happily do that, but I'd just like, you know, yeah. So there you are. Fun, fun fact. If you ever want to, you can pretend to be an author and you can graffiti someone's book. Okay. And, and then at shows, I mean, I'm sure you'll, you know, sign a book if someone asks, but at shows you have a tendency of signing something different, right? Yeah. So I can't remember if it started as a joke or a request, um, but I started signing calculators. And apparently that's become a thing. And so people will bring their calculators along to my shows and I'll happily sign them afterwards, which is good fun. Although uh, last week I also signed three different types of Rubik's Cubes. That was kind of fun. Um, we've had someone brought a punch card to one show this tour, which was fantastic. And I've, and oh, and a slide rule. I had one slide rule this tour that someone brought along, um, which I happily signed afterwards. Uh, and so actually... The, the calculator thing probably started, I do a lot of work in schools as well. So that's a lot less comedy, a lot more educational. And I do uh, big events for schools where lots of school kids come along and we hire like the daytime part of a theater. Uh, they're called Bass Inspiration um, events, if people want to look them up, but they're only in the UK at the moment. And obviously those kids have to bring their calculators with them. But then teenagers had this kind of, they want to be kind of post-ironic. And so they find it hilarious to get me to sign their calculators and i think it kind of spiraled from there but yeah now i, I signed some some unusual ma uh, mathematical equipment and calculators uh, it seemed to be something that you you have a particular fascination with like, like overall i mean in particular why do you do unboxing videos for calculators oh my goodness uh, so i do you're right i have a unusual uh fascination with calculators and I, I mean, they're just, they're kind of always there. You're, they're kind of your sidekick in mathematics, doing a lot of the hard work for you. And on one side, I'm amazed with how they actually work, like what they actually do, uh, which is a whole different story. And then uh, separately, I just love everything that goes around with being calculators. And so on uh, the number file YouTube channel, which I do quite a bit of, we were like, hey, wouldn't it be great to do uh, some unboxing videos? But what we could do is, because people online do unboxing videos, if anyone's not seen these, when people get a new product, they film themselves opening it. Like they, they go, oh, here's the outside of the box. And then they vaguely describe that. Uh, but you can see the outside of the box. And then they open it up. And they're like, oh, my goodness, the product's in here. And then they describe the product. I mean, not very exciting. Really handy if you want to buy a thing and you want to check out online what comes in the box. But anyway, so I thought, let's do it with calculators. And so we got a whole load of calculators. And I had a great old, we, the first time we did it, so Brady, who does number file, was like, look, we'll give this a go. We'll see what happens. And so I went to his house and we went out shopping. I brought a few calculators with me. We popped out. We bought a few more. Uh, now people send them in. I've got a big box of calculators people have sent me to unbox. That's my unboxing box. 
Um, at the time, we, we went and bought a few from the shops, took them back to his house and just went, all right, let's do it. And so we just spent a day messing around with me opening calculators up and doing kind of reviews. So I would describe the contents. I would then review and critique all the material that came with it. Uh, I'd give them scores on how trendy the, cal- the, the cred, technically, uh, how durable the calculator was. And the one serious point was there are ways you can test a calculator to see how accurate this is and for a lot of people a calculator is just a sealed box they don't know what's going on in there you push the buttons the answer appears but obviously inside there has to be some kind of circuitry and someone's got to have written some programming which makes that work and i think it's a real shame people don't realize how clever the contents of the calculator is and it's not perfect because it's obviously it's a machine trying to approximate calculations. And so there are ways you can test how good the internals of the calculator are and you can try and trip it up to see, you know, how small an angle it can find the sign of, what it does if you do something like divide by zero. Uh, can you calculate square roots and then multiply the square roots to get back to the original number? Some calculators won't. If you multiply root two by root two, you end up with 1.99999. And that's a little insight into what it's doing in there. And so the serious part of the calculator unboxings was me wanting to explore the how amazing but yet the problems with how calculators do mathematics. Uh, the durability tests, if anyone's seen them, was just because Brady had a slow motion camera lying around. <laughs> and we were like, well, we can't waste this. What should we do? I'm like, hey, let's go take the calculators outside. So we've got slow motion footage of... Like the first one we did quite seriously, we're like, well, let's just do, we've got the slow-mo camera, we'll go outside and we'll drop the camera. As if I was calculating, I, I did such an amazing calculation, I dropped it out of shock and we slow-mo filmed it hitting the ground. But then we started to get excited. We've, since then, we've run them over with cars, we've set them on fire, all sorts of ridiculous things. Calculators, more durable than you think. So what's your favorite calculator? Oh, my favorite calculator is the Casio FX39, which I'm just, um, as we speak, I'm Googling it just so I've got a picture in front of me. So the FX39, yeah, okay, here we go. If you chuck Casio FX39 into Google or your search engine of choice, you will see a variety of pictures and bits and pieces. Oh, you get some ads for some modern ones. Ignore those. I've got the original one from the late 70s, I believe. And this has been one of my main working calculators for a long time. It's got a proper light-up, like LED-ish display. It's got a physical switch to switch from degrees to radians. It's got a port, so you can plug in a power cable, right? So if you're doing calculations too intensive, just (laughs) mere batteries, you can plug it into the wall, really get serious. Uh, And so I love it. And it was, I bought it, when I was teaching, when I was, when I was a math teacher, I bought it from eBay. It was the oldest calculator I could find that did trigonomic functions. And so that was my kind of my, my criteria was I wanted an old calculator that I had to do trigonomic functions. And, and the Casio FX39 was the one I came up with. So that's my favorite calculator. Hey, it's Sam. Sorry to pop into the middle of the show like this, but there's something I wanted to tell you about. I have another show called Relatively Prime. It features the best stories from the mathematical domain. And if you like this show, you will love Relatively Prime. So far this season, we've talked about the mathematics of politics, the mathematics of cities, and most recently, the mathematics of dating. And we're right now trying to raise money for the third season of Relatively Prime. This time, it's gonna be monthly for a full year. 
that is 12 episodes of amazing mathematical stories coming to you for the next year. And we really, really want to do this, but as I said, we're trying to raise money, and we're doing it on Kickstarter. So if you want some cool rewards, like pins, or access to bonus content, or me to do your chores and cook you dinner, that's right, that's that's an actual reward, or a relatively prime notebook that is super awesome. You can get those by giving some money to the Kickstarter. That's Relatively Prime Season 3. You can find it on Kickstarter or just by going to relprime.com slash kickstarter. It's a great show and it's so cool and mathy and I know that you will love it. And I know that the world needs more mathematic stories. So help me do that and toss a few dollars my way. Or just tell everyone you know about it. Or do both. That would be the best. Now, back to Matt Parker. So, not not too long ago, I talked to Katie Steckles for this show. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, so, yeah, like two episodes ago. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and and so I, I, one of the things I spoke to her about was the Domino computer uh, and, and, got, oh and got her perspective from it. Uh, so it's the person who's kind of like ultimately responsible for that. I take some responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> what what was it like going through the building process, knowing that if it failed, like that's that's all on you? Oh my goodness, that was the most <laughs> terrifying. Like the, it took about stress. So building it actually wasn't that bad because, uh, as I'm sure Katie mentioned, we had a team of maybe twelve people who were there helping us out. We had ten thousand dominoes to balance, which is a lot. But we had, you know, we had all day. So we spent hours and hours and hours balancing dominoes. And on, on the small scale, that was incredibly stressful because you'd balance them up and they'd fall over and you'd balance them on and they'd fall over. And we used to leave breaks in the chains of dominoes. So there were gaps. So if you bumped it and it started to all fall over, it would hit a gap and stop. And so the one rule we had building it to keep the stress at a minimum was if you accidentally bumped over some dominoes you were working on, then it wasn't your job to fix them. You got up, you walk away, someone else will come in and fix it. Because the last thing you want to be doing is fixing you know, dominoes with a, with a sense of revenge. Right? <laughs> so you want someone else who's not emotionally attached to those dominoes to come in and do it. And we had people rotating on and off. So actually we had decoy tables, which were on the other side of the hall, because we're at the Museum of Science and Industry in Manchester. We had the big space in the middle of their main hall, which is a big flat concrete seismically stable floor which was perfect and actually we were just in front of the working rebuild of the Manchester baby computer which is one of the ones that Alan Turing worked on I think it was one of the ones he did the early operating systems and other programs for which is amazing so we were building it in front of that on the other side of the room we passed an airplane we had uh, decoy tables where people like who wanted to get involved could come and make their own little circuits and they could bounce the dominoes knock them over and do all that well away from our important dominoes. And if people got too stressed building the circuit, they could then go over and play on the domino tables and they could mess around with those uh, and, and with the members of the public who came up. So it was like a break. And so we had constantly had people rotating on and off to keep it, keep it not, not that stressful. Where it became incredibly stressful was at the very end, we had to start filling in the gaps. And once you start filling in the gaps, the moment you bump anything, it's just going to run and run and go and you can't stop it. And if you look at the videos online, so there's a few little videos on the number four channel on my Stand Up Maths YouTube channel. There's the full video of the whole circuit. And when you see it, you go, there is so little space to walk around inside it that if the moment 
anything got bumped towards the end there. That was it. It was just going to go. There's no way we could stop it. And so there was a there was space of about half an hour where I knew if I heard falling dominoes in the room, it was all over. That was just, it was just, that was it. It wasn't going to work. It was the end of the day. We, we, you know, we'd wasted our time. We'd have to try again. And so for that half an hour, I, I spent the whole time going, don't hear dominoes, don't, don't. Because <laughs> oh, there were hundreds of people walking around. The, it just took one jerk to roll something in. Oh, my goodness. And I actually, spoiler alert, the second one didn't work properly. Anyone who hasn't seen it or hasn't heard Katie's interview, but it didn't work in interesting ways. And I was okay with that. I was more than happy for it to go wrong as long as it was an insightful wrong. If it went wrong because someone bumped it and it just all fell over, that would be soul destroying. And so uh, to this day, that sound of dominoes all falling on concrete sends shivers down my Just watching the video sends shivers down my spine sometimes. I, I, I wish I would have known that. I would have queued up a sound effect just you every once in a while. Play, just, just play some dominoes toppling in the background. <laughs> oh, goodness. Uh, so, so actually going back to your book, since, since we're bouncing around a little bit here, uh, how was writing your book different from uh, preparing the, say, routines that you that you do in person, either the more educational ones for school children or the more comedic ones that you that you do for, you know, science-loving adults? It's a very good question. So the when I prepare a routine for... Now, the routines themselves are very different between in schools and with adults, but the preparation, as you've very correctly pointed out, is very, very similar. If I'm writing a routine that I'm going to perform live on stage, I, I have a think about things I think are interesting. I bounce them off some people I know to see if they're interesting to other humans as well. And then I sit down, I, I, I gradually write around them so I can then go perform them on stage and then see how the audience responds and gradually whittle them down to what I'm going to perform. And it's a very, very organic process because a, a, a routine or a show or anything I'm doing on stage is never finished. You're constantly tweaking it and changing it. So uh, night before last, I we did the 38th show on tour of our Spoken Nerd show. And before that, we did it at the Edinburgh Fringe 23 times. And before that, we did it in preparation about 11 times. And so we're, we're going to end up doing this thing nearly 100 times. And so we're well over 50, 60, 70 times into it now. And even then, after the show, we're like, oh, we could change that. I could tweak that. Like You never finish a routine. And so it's, it's a very iterative process. Whereas writing for a book is, is much, it's a lot slower for a start. So it took me two years from when I first started writing it to when I could no longer change the manuscript without the publishers trying to hurt me. And that, that, so two years of working away on the one project was, was amazing. But you get, it's a lot slower. You, don't, you get far fewer kind of iterations. So I wrote, well, normally you write a first draft. I wrote a zeroth draft, handed that in, got, that, got all the comments back from my editor. And it's the first book I've done. So I, wrote, I overwrote. I wrote like one and a quarter times, one actually one and a third times maybe what I had to actually fill a book with. It came back, I then cut it down, and then it went through two, two and a half, three possibly more drafts before the finished product that you see um, in bookshops defaced by me. And that's, it. for me, I'm used to having far more versions bouncing backwards and forwards. But the advantage of a book is you can go into so much more detail. You have a much better control of what level of detail and 
not action, but the 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 book equivalent. Because when you're on stage, you've got to account for every second and what the audience is doing, and you've got to vary your pace. But you can't let the audience lag for too long at any point, uh, and you've got to give them a chance to rest here and there. Whereas a book, what I enjoyed was I could go through and do all the interesting bits of maths, which I think are fascinating. But there was never a way to do them on stage because just the pacing and the timing wouldn't work on stage. There's no way you could, an audience would never be with you for long enough. Like no audiences would show up at you know seven in the morning for a long day of listening to me building up to something I want to do at six o'clock that night whereas in a book you can do that and so my favorite example is I've always wanted to talk about the the Riemann hypothesis in more detail than just ooh, it's primes they line up somewhere uh, and don't get me wrong because people do some great stuff on Riemann on stage but you can you just can't get into where the, the zeta function comes from what the whole Riemann hypothesis thing actually is trying to say the, the whole everything behind it there's just too much detail from too many different bits of mathematics and so in my book i was like i can do this and so the whole way through the book i'm drip feeding there's little bits here and there where i'm building up the things you need to do the Riemann hypothesis some actual credit like d do it decently and then i was able to do that right towards the very end of the book and and for me i mean that was very, very different to doing stuff on stage, but for me, that was the huge advantage of, of doing it in book form. Now, we brought up Festival of the Spoken Nerd a, a, a few times. Uh, can you uh, tell me a bit about uh, what Festival of the Spoken Nerd is and, and kind of how it's evolved into the, the thing that it's become now? So, it, uh, Festival of the Spoken Nerd started back actually about five years ago. So, 2010, I was up at the Edinburgh Fringe, which is a massive arts festival in Scotland. And it's where a lot of comedians go to try out new shows or to try and attract the attention of people in TV, all that jazz. And so, in that year, I was up doing a show called The Maths of Death, which I think I've spoken to you before about with someone called Madra Harkness. Yeah, it showed up on an episode of Relatively Prime called The Toolbox, yes. and we talked about micromorts and risk. Yes, yeah, that's it. It was in my office in uh, London. Yeah, so I did that. So, and I, that's the show I was doing with Commander Harkness. And it was a great show to do. But at the same time, elsewhere in this festival, someone called Helen Arnie was doing a comedy music show. And it wasn't explicitly very nerdy, but she had some very, very nerdy songs hidden away within it. She had a song called Statistically I Love You, which was uh, a mathematically accurate love song. And so a lot of her audiences would come and tell me, hey, you've got to see Helen's show. It's amazing. And she's got a song about maths. And uh, another guy called uh, Steve Mould was doing a show uh, called Mould and Arrowsmith with a fantastic performer called Gemma Arrowsmith. And that was like sketch comedy, but a bit more sci-fi leaning. And we suddenly realized we were passing the same audience was going to all our shows. We were having each shows recommended to each other. And we're like, hey, guys, we should, we should, you know, we should do a show together. And so we're like, we know what, let's try a new material night in London. So we'll start up, we just, we'll book a room above a pub, like a little comedy club, and we'll do a proper nerdy night where we can all get together and do proper nerdy stuff. And so we're like, hey, we'll call it Festival of the Spoken Nerd. And that's where it was born. It was born as a new material night above a pub uh, in London, not that far from Oxford Circus, for anyone who knows London, and uh, called the Green Man Pub. And so we did that for a while and we were amazed because the first time like the, the room would fit 40 people. And so we sold like 50 tickets because, you know, we're idiots. And then we went, oh, let's go to a bigger, we should go to a bigger venue. And so we went to a bigger theater and that kept filling up. And we're like, hey, there's something in this. 
so we should put some effort in. So then we're like, right, we're going to, we're going to clearly people want to show up and see a bunch of comedians delighting in how much they enjoy math and science. And so we put some serious effort into then honing it as a proper show we could do and a show we could take other places. And so since then we've gradually worked it up into a much slicker stage show and we've done various versions. So we, our previous show was called full frontal nerdity, which was great fun. And that is now available on DVD and download. There you go. Uh, Festival of the spoken nerd.com. And our current show we're touring at the moment is called just for graphs. And we, have only a handful of shows left on that and then we will sit down and start the process of recording that for dvd as well but at some point in 2016 we'll do that and so it's just amazing because i used to work the normal comedy circuit going to random comedy clubs and i'll just be another comedian they've booked and i'll come out and tell some jokes to drunk people that which which was great but it, it wasn't as satisfying whereas now we have a show called Festival Spoken Nerd, and people it's got nerd in the title, so you have a good self-selecting audience, and we get to travel around the country, and indeed the world. We came over, and we did a show in Vegas. Hey, there you are, of all places. Uh, back in Vegas again, we were at the Amazing Meeting, which is James Randi's big conference once a year in Vegas, and we were like the big entertainment show on the Saturday night, and so we came over and did that, which was great. And um, so it, it, we've done it previously once in New York. We did a one-off show. And so now we can go around the world doing these shows. People come along and have a great time. As, as a performer who loves, I love comedy and I love math. Oh, sorry, maths should be up to maths. I love maths. And so I am keeping track. And so for me, it's, it's, it's a huge pleasure to be able to do it. And just a masses of fun. Uh, and so to, to loop back kind of to my, uh, my introduction of you, as I mentioned, you do a ton of things. Let's see. Think maths, comedy shows, videos, book, maths inspiration, festival of the spoken nerd. Uh, you even sell mathematical curiosities at mathsgear.com. Yes. Uh, so, so math popularization is a niche area. Don't you think that you should let someone else have a chance? It is a niche area, and I'm all over it. Uh, no, yeah, it's a very, very good point. So I, I'm very lucky that I can do whatever takes my interest, whatever I think will be interesting. The downside is I find a lot of things interesting. <laughs> and so whenever there's a thing that's not happening or not being done, I'm like, oh, I want to do that, right? So I'll do it. And, oh, goodness, but I end up doing too much stuff. So, so Mass Gear is a perfect example. So that's our, our website where we sell nerdy mass toys. And that, that began when I would come across cool things in math that didn't exist as physical objects. And I spoke to Steve, who does Spoken Nerd with me about this. And he's like, yeah, I, occasionally I make things for use, like in educational school shows. And the teacher's like, where do you get that from? And he's like, well, it, I had to get it made specially because it doesn't really exist. And then I got chatting to James Grant, who uh, you know as well. And James, at the time, had just come up with these non-transitive dice. And he had made them by drawing dots onto some uh, bits of foam. And we were like, oh, they, 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 these, are, these are great, but they should exist as a real thing. And so we set up math gear to find math things that don't exist but should. And then, and then we make them. But, you know, the, the, whole, the whole maths communication market space, it would be great. I mean, there are people like yourself doing it and a lot of academics do bits of it. And then... Yeah, a few other people like us who are kind of independent math communicators for hire, for the most part, there's, there's not a massive industry. I mean, if, if people are studying uh, mathematics or they're uh, math teachers in schools, which is where, where I started, 
you, and you go, you know, I love talking about math. I want to get it out to more people. Then it, it's, it's, you can start it as a hobby and you can really get into it seriously if you want. I mean, I think mass communication is, is a fantastic industry to be in. Uh, I, I, I fully agree. And I want to thank you so much for giving me your time today. No problem. As always, I'm glad we were able to line it up. Pleasure to come and chat. And, uh, I hope, I hope, uh, I, I will try and come up with another seven or eight new things to be doing well <laughs> by the next time we have an well, interview. I, I mean, you have, you have five years before you show up on this show again. So, right, okay. I'll say, I'll say, I'll put it in my diary right now. I'll get on. <laughs> <laughs> And that is all the time that we have for this episode of Strongly Connected Components. First of all, head over to relprime.com. The newest episode has a bit with Matt Parker in it. So if you want Matt Parker, go to relprime.com. Listen to Relatively Prime. It's an amazing mathematics podcast that I do that features the best stories from the mathematical domain. And it really is great. If you are listening to this, you really need to be listening to Relatively Prime. Now, you can also head on over to acmescience.com and find links to things that Matt does, like his book, or his website, or his Twitter, and also to Lowercase N, who provided the intro and outro music for this episode. And as always, Strongly Connected Components is released under Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike License. So please feel free to remix my words however you want, as long as you say that you got them from Strongly Connected Components and AcmeScience.com. Oh, and you have to share whatever you make in the same way that I shared this. Finally, if you want to get in contact with me, that is Samuel at AcmeScience.com. That is my real personal email address. So if you have any complaints, congratulations, suggestions for guests, send them to me there. And as always, have a matherific week.